0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in? Welcome to the 100th episode of Office Hours. Sarah Loggison and I, Kyle Green, have enjoyed producing and hosting the podcast for the past few years, and we are now passing it on to the new Graduate editorial board of the Society Pages. We will, however, be directing our efforts towards a new podcast on research methods and practice called Give Methods a Chance. Find us at thesocietypages.org backslash methods. In this episode, we speak to Emily Bazelon. Emily is former senior editor at Slate, a New York Times Magazine staff writer, and the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. We asked Emily to join us today, as she is one of the most visible translators and disseminators of social science research.
1: In your work and on your podcast appearances, you draw upon a variety of social science research. So when has this worked well, and what's the added value in adding academic scholarship?
2: The added value is that instead of just relying on anecdotes and, you know, people's descriptions of their own lives or people's descriptions of events, you have this evidence that can really ground what you're saying. And I have become, I hope, a journalist who really insists on that. I feel like if I don't have some good social science or hard science behind um, a story I'm writing, that it's a big weakness and it makes me question um, whether it's a story I really want to do.
1: So, academic writing in its published form can often be quite inaccessible. So, how do you sort through it um, or how do you recommend that other journalists engage with social science?
2: I think journalists are in the role of translators for this work and that it is up to us to wade through the jargon and the density. So that we can make it accessible to our readers, um, and you know there is a reason why academic writing is the way it is, because the, the jargon is really shorthand allows people to talk about complicated ideas without getting overwhelmed by the words that it takes to make something um, really accessible. So I, you know, respect that about it. I also think, you know, parenthetically, that a lot of times academic writing could be simpler and clearer. But, you know, even if it's not, I am interested, if I'm interested enough, and I feel like the findings are of value, then I will take it upon myself to read study after study and call, you know, professor after professor in order to make sure I really understand something.
1: Right. So you can kind of go to the source, too, and sort of have um, an academic explain things in their own words, which is probably helpful.
2: Right. And sometimes I can, in an ignorant way, ask questions that force someone or push someone to explain things in lay terms. I mean, I think that students can do that for faculty members, but, you know, they don't always talk about their own research with their students in their classes. And so I often feel like I'm just playing the role of a kind of curious, basically educated person who's trying to get them to explain what they found and why it's important.
1: Now, when you're going through and doing your own research, are you ever concerned about the validity of a study that you're looking at? Um, and how do you make that determination of what expert to trust or what journalist to cite?
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the very hardest things for journalists, because we're not in a good position to, on our own, analyze um, the worth of a study, usually. You know, so for example, I kind of cursed myself for not having taken statistics in college, but I didn't. And so... I don't have a good way usually of judging methodology. So what I do instead is, you know, I look for where the weight of the evidence is going. Um, You know, in most fields you can figure out as you read around what the outlier study is, you know, the thing that was never replicated versus the kind of movement of the field in a particular direction. Um, I really like meta-analyses because (laughs) there's sort of a way I can be more sure um of what I'm seeing and then the other thing is that I do look for guides I look for people who you know seem to have solid credentials who are good explainers who are willing to spend the time with me um and and I ask for their help in kind of figuring out the lay of the land
1: right and I know that in your book you drew um upon a lot of social science was there anything in particular that worked well when you were doing that project
2: hmm that's a good question um what was like a particularly, well, for bullying, there are some big fights in the field. So I like fights. They're interesting. You know, I mean, I don't have anything invested in particular, but I always, it, when you see people going to confronting each other on certain questions, it can make it easier to figure out what the field as the whole knows and is certain of and what it isn't. So I was definitely interested in some of the arguments going on in the, research world about bullying and I think I kind of saw myself not as like a broker exactly but I you know I wasn't taking a strong position I wanted my readers to get a sense of what the different approaches were
1: Academics sometimes complain that journalists will simplify or sensationalize their findings or kind of pull out that one nugget that helps them tell the story they're trying to tell Um, so how do you when you're using studies balance sort of the complexity of maybe the research versus the need to translate it um, or you only use part of it, something like that.
2: Well, you know, this is a really tricky issue for journalists. I'm lucky in that, first of all, I don't work on TV, which is the place where the most simplifying goes on, I think. And also, I usually am not under, like, super deadline pressure, which is the other place, I think, in which things often go awry. So if you're neither of those categories (laughs) and you have time and you have the space to like really, you know, explain, then I think there's not much excuse for oversimplifying. I mean, I totally make mistakes. I don't want to suggest otherwise. But I think that you have to be really careful about accuracy. I do think that there are some academics who basically, no matter what, will feel like the journalist oversimplified their work. They're just not comfortable with the summarized version of their findings. I don't have a whole lot of patience for that. I mean, I basically feel like if you have something of value to say, you should be able to say it clearly and succinctly in a way that people with a high school or college education can basically understand. I mean, maybe if you're not like a physicist, I don't know. I don't write about physics, but, <laughs> but in social science, I basically feel like you are writing about the world around you. And so you should be able to explain what you found in some, with some kind of clarity. And that's what journalists do when they're, you know, doing their work well, or they help do, I should say.
1: So your last point actually makes me think um, when Kyle and I were thinking about what we wanted to ask you, we, We're trying to construct a question that sort of compares places like Slate or a lot of the work in the New York Times versus sort of soundbite journalism. Um, And maybe you could just kind of comment on being part of this more long-form, deeper, richer form of journalism um, and maybe how that can kind of help us get better journalism. Well,
2: look. I mean, I'm really lucky. I have a lot of latitude to write about what I want. If I feel like I need more time to write about something, I can almost get always get it. I can get you know more length if I want, and I think if you're in that position, then what you're doing hopefully is going into more depth on topics in a clear and interesting way. And, you know, people hopefully will read and digest what you're saying and then often also radio and TV will kind of follow along and pick up what you're doing and do their version of it and then you hope you feel like they're doing a responsible version of it, but you don't have total control over that. So I feel like that's I'm that's my place in the food chain and Um, I do the best I can with my part of it and then I don't um, ever expect to control all the implications (laughs) and all the uses of it and like that's okay, that's the way it goes.
1: From your experience of working with scholars and working with their research, um, what have scholars done well to generate public discussion and I'm really interested in policy change because it's often, you know, academics have this great idea but it, it gets lost in translation and certainly gets lost at the policy level. Um, so what have, what have people done well to generate this, and what can be done better?
2: I think academics can figure out how to publicize their own work by getting really good at things like writing op-eds or going on radio and TV, and then you have more control. I mean, you're the one controlling the presentation of it. Or they can get good at writing up their work or working with, like, the PR department um, to write a press release in a way that highlights what they have found, and then journalists will hopefully call them and then they'll be good explainers. And I think that it's important to take all of that seriously as a skill that you need training to do. There's no particular reason that that's going to come naturally. So I think it's smart to invest some time in taking and learning how to do this the way you do with any you know world you're entering into that's not your world. Um, there was a second part to your question, which I've now forgotten, so if you want me to answer it, you should ask it again.
1: Well, just, you know, what's been working and and what can be done better, and sort of that, um, I mean, I think it's true, and there's nothing, there's no class in graduate school about how to package and disseminate your work. It's sort of this taken-for-granted assumption that once you send it off to a journal, you're going to have an imagined audience, but clearly that's a, a small audience.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I think when academics are trying to make policy changes, they have to think of themselves as being activists as well as scholars. And some people are super comfortable with that, and some people are not. So, for example, I have a friend who was writing about um, issues, problems in, I think, Nike shoe factories, if I'm remembering correctly, in, like, Vietnam a few years ago, and he was able to really – Get back back up his claims with evidence about the problems that he saw and that was like a pretty you know sexy story about problems with nike and so by getting a lot of good press for that and being smart about how he released it he was able to put pressure on nike and things changed that sometimes there's serendipity in all of this where a professor will really have no intention of like ending up on, you know, the front page of the New York Times, but they just have something really explosive to say. Usually, though, it helps to be strategic in how you release things. And, you know, some things are really simple. Like if you have a study that is kind of complicated, especially if you want it to be accurately reported, sending it out with an embargo and giving journalists a chance to have a couple of days or more to process it and make calls about it can be a really good strategy. Um, And I see that more and more, but I still feel like I don't see it enough.
1: My final question is that I learned about your work uh, through the Slate podcast. And since we're on a podcast, I was just hoping you could uh, share a little bit about what that experience has been like, how it's changed your career, or how it compares to the other kind of work that you do.
2: Oh, well, that's – I mean, it's like my – It's a total pleasure. I would say it's a guilty pleasure, except it's work. Um, (laughs) I don't even have to feel that way. I mean, you know, I've been doing this podcast for years with David Ploth and John Dickerson. When we started out, it was just basically like what we were talking about when we walked to grab a sandwich together for lunch. And it survived my leaving our D.C. office, so I'm now remote. Um, And it is just really – a way to talk through a few issues each week and the way I think it the most um, differs from my written work is that I feel like I can play around with ideas I don't have to know all the time what my argument is Um, and I trust the back and forth to be of some interest even if everyone's kind of figuring it out along the way.
1: Well, we very much enjoy it and we really appreciate taking you, uh, taking some time today to talk with us. The kind of work that you guys are doing is exactly the kind of work that um, we hope to have our own research appear in someday. So I very much appreciate it.
2: Good. Well, I hope you guys are thinking, it's great that you're thinking about all this and I wish you lots of success.